Okay, Isaiah 62, page 621 in your pew Bible. I'm going to start off with just uh, a general concept of what we learn about, what, what the Bible teaches about God. It kind of plays into Isaiah chapter 62. I think this will be one week in chapter 62, and then next week we'll move on to chapter 63. I want to start with the Bible teaches the Lord God is eternal and unchanging. Uh, the Bible teaches many things about God. The God teaches many things about ourselves. It reveals who we are. It reveals who God is. And the gap is great. On one hand, we're created in the image of God, and so that's a very good and positive thing. But the image has been marred by our sin, both what we inherited and what we participate in actively still to this day. And that is a gap that is bridged by the grace of God. God himself is eternal He's unchanging. One of the references that came to mind is found in Psalm 102. It reads, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Eternal and unchanging. That especially emphasizes God's uh, eternality. He's no beginning, no ending. Isaiah puts it this way, since that's the book we've been going through this year, chapters 40 to 66. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 reads, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So one of the things, one of the things that drew me to Isaiah chapters 40 to the end of the book, 66, is is God's magnificence is so lifted up in those last 27 chapters. It's highlighted over and over again as is demonstrated in the first chapter we did, chapter 40. And then continuing in Isaiah, there these many references where God keeps talking about his exclusivity. So I'm going to have you look real quick. Just start with uh, chapter uh, 43. Look at chapter 43 real quick. Isaiah 43, verse 11. You see this statement where the Lord says, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. Verse 15, same chapter. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Chapter 40, 40, well, maybe go to 45. Let me go to chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's a prophecy in regard to Cyrus, uh, uh, Cyrus the Great. He was a Persian emperor who actually... uh, gave the edict that the exiles could return to Jerusalem, return to the promised land. So the Lord reveals to, in this prophecy to Cyrus, there's no other. I'm all there. I'm the only God that there is. And this is a, a repeated theme in Isaiah. I think we could keep going. Uh, chapter 45, verse 21. 
The last part of verse 21 reads, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. There's only this one God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's exclusive. There's only one God. And that's a theme that's just hammered away in Isaiah over and over and over again. And and how does this God reveal himself, this God who is exclusive, this God who is eternal, this God who is unchanging? I will suggest this. He makes himself known in both judgment and salvation. How does God reveal himself in judgment and in salvation? A really terrific story, uh, which kind of because of this concept of the Bible in some ways keeps telling the same story of sin and redemption and salvation over and over and over again. It's, it's layered out time and time again. This ball kind of gets rolling when the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And the Lord calls Moses to be their deliverer. And Aaron, his brother, will accompany him. Aaron will be like a prophet uh, for Moses, who because Moses doesn't like the way he speaks. And you've got this incident with Pharaoh. This is in uh, Exodus chapter 5. And Moses, with Aaron, delivers this message to Pharaoh. The Lord says, let my people go, that they may worship me in the wilderness. Do you remember what Pharaoh says? I don't know the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I mean, you're talking about your God, Israel's God, the God of... You know, for Moses, it would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I don't know your Lord. Why should I obey your Lord? Well, what you find out in the next 11 chapters is that the Lord makes himself known to Pharaoh in judgment. As ten plagues are rained down upon the Egyptians in the land of Egypt, culminating the death of the firstborn. And then the Egyptians finally are, are happy to see them go. But then Pharaoh has a change of heart and he begins to pursue them. And again, Pharaoh finds out who the Lord is because Pharaoh and his army perish in the Red Sea when it swallows them up. But just like the Lord made himself known to Pharaoh and all of Egypt and the surrounding nations, this is a God you don't trifle with. It's a God of judgment and power. He's also a God of salvation to the Jews, to the Israelites. Because they walked through the Red Sea as on dry land. They were delivered and they sang songs of redemption on the other side. And while it primarily affected only Israel, there were remnants of people like Rahab who placed her faith and identified with Israel's God. She wanted to be with them, be like them. She wanted to worship their God. She recognized there's no God like your God. We worship, we worship all in our own ways, but nobody has a God like you have a God. And so Rahab identified with Israel's God. She found that God made himself known to her in salvation. And so this is a theme that's repeated over and over in Scripture, that, that God reveals himself in judgment. He reveals himself in salvation. There's a phrase in Ezekiel. My Bible reading has had me in Ezekiel. And there's a phrase used there, in Ezekiel, more than any other book of the Bible, it's the phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord. Or it may say, they shall know that I am the Lord. 35 times, more, more in Ezekiel than all the rest of the Bible put together, if I remember rightly. Of those 35 times, 24 times, it's in reference to judgment. 
The Lord is going to judge in some particular way. He's going to, he's going to uh, bring his po- make his power known, his holiness known, uh, both to Israel and to the surrounding nations because of their sin. And you shall know that I am the Lord. But 11 of those times is you shall know I am the Lord by my salvation. That's to the Israelites. That's to Jerusalem. That's to Zion. That's to his people. But 35 times this reference, you shall know who I am. Because if he doesn't reveal himself, we have all kinds of crazy ideas who God is. In fact, most of us, probably all of us here have some crazy ideas about who God is and his character. And they need they need changed in accordance with what the Bible actually says. I mean, once in a while, somebody in a discussion will say, well, my God wouldn't do that. But the problem is he's not your God. He's God. He's not, he's not my God. He's not our God. He's not an American God. He's God. And God is who he reveals himself to be. And sometimes we're uncomfortable with that, as we ought to be. But God reveals himself in judgment He reveals himself in salvation, and that means one day I will stand before that God, and I will face either a God who will judge me and condemn me, or a God who by his grace will have saved me. But you will face that God. You won't face the God of your own imagination. You won't face the God that you wish uh, existed. You will face the God of Scripture, the God who says he has no equal and there's none like me. In fact, there's no other God but me. You will face that God either in judgment or in salvation. And so the Bible is a record of how we can uh, be forgiven by his grace. Forgiven by the work that only he could accomplish, not by what I can accomplish for myself. All right, let's move on from this. Let's talk about some themes in Isaiah. These are themes we've looked at before, uh, but they come up again in chapter 62. Uh, one in particular, the one that I want to highlight out of this list, these themes aren't merely in Isaiah, they're themes of Scripture. So when you read the Bible, if it's a, very, if it's a, a, if it's a book of the Bible, it's more than just a chapter or two, it probably has most of these themes in any book of the Bible. Theme number one is a theme of sin. Uh, in Isaiah, it's particularly uh, in regard to Israel's sin. Israel is a sinful, idolatrous nation. They worship many other idols. They have not been loyal to uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are a sinful people. They are a broken, sinful, abominating type of people that the Lord has called and made his own, his own nation. The second theme in Isaiah is a theme of judgment because of sin Judgment necessarily follows. Uh, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's, I can't remember which book of the Bible that's in. I, numbers, I don't think it's Exodus. My guess would be Numbers. But there's a, themes in the Bible of sin, of judgment. Thirdly, there's a theme of grace. Grace is that in spite of our sin, in spite of the fact that God, because he is holy and righteous, will condemn the soul that sins, will bring them into judgment, Yet there is grace to be found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is not found in me trying harder to be a better person. Forgiveness of sins is not, well, I'll start going to church more faithfully than I did before. Forgiveness of sins is not, I will start participating in an offering or some activity. Forgiveness of sins is found in faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is perfect. I am not. 
You're not. I'm a sinner looking at sinners. We are all in need of what only God can do. That's grace. A fourth theme in Isaiah is a theme of encouragement for those that are faithful, that are trusting in God's promise, that are relying on his grace. There's this constant theme of trust me. I know it's difficult now. I know you're disappointed now. I know if you look outside the window or pick up a newspaper, it's not all perfect now, but trust me. So there's this constant theme in Isaiah and all of scripture Trust me, I'm still in control. I know where it's going to wind up. And the last theme, and it's the theme we find particularly in chapter 62, it's a theme of renewal and reversal. Everything's going to change. It's not just going to be uh, a world in which there's many reasons to give thanks. We've talked about some this morning. It's not just going to be an improved world. It's going to be a complete reversal It's going to go back to the garden before sin, when it all winds up at the end of Revelation. In Isaiah chapter 62, the renewal and the reversal particularly has to do with Zion. It particularly has to do with Jerusalem, which we'll talk about some this morning. But let's start, let me start, by reading Isaiah chapter 62, follow along in your own Bible. It reads like this, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it. And praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be sought out, a city not forsaken. So that chapter starts off with three little words for Zion's sake. All that we just read, this great reversal, this great change of fortunes, this great renewal, is all. it starts off for Zion's sake. Why for Zion's sake? And the answer is simply because the Lord has made certain promises to Zion. The Lord is the one who made Zion desolate. 
The Lord is the one who made Zion forsaken. And for Zion's sake, he's made a promise. It's not going to stay that way. It doesn't end like you're, like it is now. For Zion's sake, it all changes. That's the promise initially. Zion, and he talks about the walls, and he talks about the city. But Zion, the city, it stands for more than just the city. It stands for all of Israel. And it's more than just this, the city and, and the land of Israel. It stands for the people. It stands for the people of the Lord. Uh, it refers to the people towards the end of chapter 62. They shall be called the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord. You shall be sought out, a city not forsaken. It's a holy people, a redeemed people. Zion is a people. It's a place too, but it's a people as well. It's both. Who's speaking in verses 1 to 5? Commentators, I have found this very difficult, at least some commentators. There's not uh, unanimity on who is speaking in those first five verses. Verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Who's the I? Who's the my in those first five verses? There are three possibilities that are suggested. I generally, when I do something like this and mention there's different possibilities, I generally kind of leave it open. But I'm pretty sure there's only one right answer, and I'm pretty convinced I think I know what it is. Not because I'm clever, but because when I read what people wrote, I don't know how anybody had any disagreement with it. But one of the possibilities is that the Lord himself is speaking. But if that's the case, one of the oddities, though it's not unheard of, is that the Lord refers to himself in the third person. So if the Lord is speaking, like for Zion's sake, the Lord God says, I will not keep silent. Verse 2 says, the nation shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And the Lord's referring to himself in the third person. That happens in the Bible. That could be happening here. But I don't find that satisfying. I don't think that's the answer. The second possibility that some commentators suggest is it's Isaiah speaking. Isaiah is the one in chapter 62 and verse 1. Isaiah says, I will not keep silent. Isaiah says, I will not be quiet. Isaiah is speaking. That's the second possibility. But the right answer is that this is the servant of the Lord. The right answer is this is Messiah speaking. And it seems so clearly to me it's the right answer because it entirely fits the context of of what just happened in chapter 61. In chapter 61, if you start back up at verse 1 again, look at, uh, nobody disputes that this isn't talking about the Messiah. Chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And then on and on it goes. And we know that's speaking about Christ. We know it's speaking about the Lord. We know it's speaking about Jesus, because Jesus read those words and said, that's talking about me. In Luke chapter 4, we already looked at that. We know Jesus... Christ, Messiah, the eternal Son of God, he's speaking in chapter 61. At the end of 61, he's still speaking, or he speaks again in verses 10 and 11, because entrusted to the Son, God the Father uh, gives the Son the work of salvation. The robes of righteousness which belong to God, 
a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, those robes of righteousness are given to the Son made incarnate, the Son made man, the Son made human. And Christ, dressed in the robes of God's righteousness, brings salvation to sinners. So in the last two verses of chapter 61, Messiah is speaking, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Not that the son needed a righteousness not his own, but the son brought righteousness to sinners. He was entrusted with the work of saving. God said, there's nobody that can save my people. That was back in chapter, was it the end of 59? The Lord looked, there's nobody that can bring salvation, redeem his people. So the Lord said, I will work salvation. How did he do it? He worked salvation in the Son. The eternal Son of God became a man, full of grace and truth, and he brought salvation to sinners. Then in chapter 62, this Son, who was entrusted with the work of salvation, this Son that was entrusted with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, This son that was entrusted with those things in chapter 61, bringing good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty, that son did all of that to perfection. He completely satisfied all that the father father had given him to do. He didn't fail not one time. He was without sin entirely. He was obedient to the father even to death on a cross. As a criminal, he was completely obedient, perfectly obedient, wholly satisfied the work of of the father's plan of redemption. That was that son. And now that son, having accomplished all that God the father had given him to do in chapter 62, it says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a burning torch. The son, having perfectly obeyed his, obeyed in perfect obedience to his father, now says, I want to see all that I worked for come to reality. And I'm not going to keep silent. I came to save Zion. I came to save the Lord's people. I came to save uh, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I came to save them. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to relent until I receive all that I worked for. That's what the son is saying in chapter 62. He worked for it. He didn't fail. He wants the reward. He wants the satisfaction of doing all that he set out to do. That's what's happening in chapter 62. What outcome is the the Messiah looking for? What is he looking for? In chapter 62, it's, it's kind of plain. It's kind of what, actually what Hannah referred to earlier, but she didn't quite finish Romans 1.16, is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Messiah Jesus came to save sinners, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And in chapter 62, that arrangement speaks loud and, well, actually, before I go to chapter 62, let me take you to a couple other places. This is a constant theme in Isaiah. The Lord is going to do something, a saving work so great in in Jerusalem that that the nations around can't help but take notice. It's kind of like similar, uh, the Lord is going to redeem his uh, people, the Israelites, out of a land of slavery of Egypt that the nations around can't help but take notice. And that's exactly what you read in Exodus. 
You've got all the nations around Israel, like when they're led out of Egypt as slaves, and nobody wants anything to do with Israel because they've heard about what their God does. And so they're afraid to touch them. And Rahab says, hey, we've heard about your God. And when Rahab says that, that was 40 years ago. Because there's been 40 years of, of Israelites perishing in wilderness. It's not like, hey, I read yesterday's news. For, can you, what news do you remember from 40 years ago? Not much. But Rahab says, we, we've heard about your God. He's a God of power. He's a God of judgment. A God of salvation. So I've, I've heard about your God. So God is going to do... That was just a precursor. That was just a, to whet your appetite of the salvation that God is going to work for Zion, for his people Israel. And what God's going to do for his people Israel is going to make the nations around stand up and take notice. That's a constant theme in Isaiah. I want you to look at it. Go to chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. These are places we've already been. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14. Chapter 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other, no God besides him. That's what God's been saying in Isaiah all along. There's no other God but me. Now you've got Gentiles saying to Israel, there's no God like your God. That's the plan. Verse 15. Well, this is then Isaiah speaking. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Go to chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 5. Chapter 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, this is Messiah speaking, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, the Father is now speaking to the Son in verse 6, the Lord says to the servant, the Lord says to Messiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Lord's plan, the Father's plan for the Son, isn't just that salvation would be brought to Israel and Zion, but that the nations would have salvation brought to them. That's the plan. That's the big plan. This is repeated lots of places, but I really don't want to run out of time. Go to chapter 51. Chapter 51, verse 3. Reads, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. It's not just for you. It's for the peoples. 
Chapter 52, verse 9. Chapter 52, verse 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All the Gentile nations are going to see what God has done for his people. I'm... Somewhere along the line, I don't know where to throw in these little remarks like my eschatology is all mixed up and scrambled, which I'm still identifying as premillennial, but it's it's tough. One of the things that seems to weigh in their favor is what would bring God greater glory than a people that were not only uh, disregarded and disobedient, not only were swallowed up among all the nations of the earth for Almost 2,000 years, they didn't even have their own homeland. And God brings them back and saves his people, the, descent, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will make them my people. I will redeem them. Those that were so far estranged. I didn't just transition them into this church thing, but I'm going to save the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think that's the promise. I think that's the promise. Um... So now in Isaiah 62, in Isaiah chapter 62, you've got this same theme of what God does for Zion affects all the nations. So in verse uh, verse 2, well, verse 1 again, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness. And all the kings, your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Skip down to verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. I think those are Gentile peoples. Um, I'm kind of running out of time, but there's three times in Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. I should have put this on the screen and I didn't. I wasn't even sure it was going to work. But there's three times in Isaiah where it talks about clearing the road, making it, making it uh, easy to get someplace. The first time is in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, clear the way for Messiah. And John the Baptist is the one that does that. John the Baptist is the one who clears the road the first time in Isaiah 40, and he gets things ready for Messiah Jesus to come. The second time, clearing the road, making the way plain, occurs in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 and 15. And in Isaiah 57 and 14 and 15, it's not clear the way for Messiah, it's clear the way for the Jews to come home. Clear the way for Israel to come home. Israel can't come home and be in a right relationship with God until Messiah prepares the way first. Messiah has to come first. Once Messiah comes in 57, now clear the way because Israel is coming home. Entering back into covenant, new covenant with with the Lord God Almighty. The third time is right now. And it's not Israel coming home, it's the peoples. It's the nations coming home. It's other nations being brought to salvation. First Messiah comes, then for the Jew, also for the Gentile. The three times, I think they're all in Isaiah chapter, all Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. Um, All right. So that's the outcome Messiah is looking for. Verse 1 talks about Zion's righteousness going forth as brightness, 
her salvation as a burning torch. I think this hails back to chapter 60, those first three verses, if you'll skip back there for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 60 reads, and this is speaking of Zion, this is still speaking of Jerusalem, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Now in chapter 62, you have that realized and fulfilled where Jerusalem's light, her righteousness is shining bright and the nations take notice. It's a fulfillment of what was promised in the first verses of chapter 60. I find it interesting, though, this is uh, one of the parts of my eschatology that doesn't make sense, and I could see where amillennialism having a valid point. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, Jesus said, you know these words, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Dude, if that doesn't sound like a fulfillment of this, I don't know what doesn't or what does. Because here, Zion's righteousness is shining in such a way it attracts attention. Jesus said exactly those words to his disciples. Let your light so shine that others are drawn to to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is that merely one more layer of what ultimately is going to be true of Jerusalem? Or is that a fulfillment? Well, good Christians can disagree on that. And they're still good Christians. But that's part of where that comes from. I think the more important underlying point of all of this is that Jesus, when he came, did not hide his righteousness. He taught the truth, the gospel of his father that was entrusted to him. He did not veil who God was. He revealed the grace and the glory of an almighty God to to Israel. In the same way, the church is entrusted with a righteousness and a light not our own. And what kind of a church are we when we hide it? And we want to conceal the fact that we maybe go to church on Sunday or we identify as Christians or we believe certain things the way we do because that's what God says in his word. What kind of a Christian is it that hides their light? What kind of a city would Jerusalem be if they hide their light? The point is what God has entrusted you with, the light, the righteousness, don't hide it. And by the way, when Jesus says you are the light of the world, the you is plural. It's not talking, it really... Uh, The song really isn't very biblical, although in a sense I get it. You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's not a fulfillment of what Jesus said. It's not letting your little light shine. It's the light of God's people together. If you're not gathering with God's people together, your light's not shining. I don't care what you're doing. Because the light shines when God's people gather together to worship Almighty God through the person and the work of His Son. All right. Verse 2 says... Not only about this brightness, but then the end of verse 2 says, And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. New name. New name. That's a fascinating concept. In Isaiah, one of the things that I, uh, the Lord has promised is, I'm doing a new thing. A new thing. You know, in the Bible, it talks about God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. 
Isaiah, it's just a new thing, this new thing. And I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to be called by a new name. The old name is forsaken and desolate, which that's not the church. The church has never been forsaken and desolate. Christ promised the church, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But Israel was forsaken and desolate. Jerusalem was forsaken and desolate. But God says, that's not the end of Jerusalem. That's not the end of Zion. That's not the end of Israel, my people. You who once were called forsaken and desolate will be called, my delight is in her. If you have a New King James Bible, actually, I think even the NIV, the second name is Beulah, which means married. You know, Christians have a song we call, uh, talk about Beulah land. It comes from a passage like this. The land is married. God hasn't forsaken the land. He hasn't forsaken Zion. He hasn't forsaken his people. And in the last verse, verse 12, they've given all these other names. Holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought out, a city not forsaken. A new name speaks of a new position and a new era. It's still generally traditional in our Western culture that when a woman gets married to a man, she takes his last name. It's not always the case, but it's generally the case. She takes a new name. Because it speaks of a new relationship. It speaks of a new era. Things have changed. Loyalties have changed. Allegiances have changed. Uh, The highest love has changed. A new name. Uh, In in the Bible, there's any number of individuals that are given a new name. Abram was given a new name, Abraham. It was a loftier name. It was a new era. It speaks of greater things than before. A new name. Daniel was tried to give a new name by King Nebuchadnezzar. You're not going to be called Daniel. We're going to call you Belteshazzar because you don't live in Israel anymore. You don't live in Jerusalem anymore. You live in Babylon. You're going to live like a Babylonian. You're going to eat like we eat. You're going to think like we think. You're going to adopt our culture. And Daniel said, I'm not going to do that. Daniel goes by the name Daniel. I know who my God is, and he's not your God. He's not. You just haven't given a, a different name to the same old God. He's not even the same. Daniel goes by Daniel. Although at the end of Daniel, he's still referred to as Belteshazzar once or twice. But it speaks of a new era. It speaks of change. We have people in our in culture today that they give themselves a new name. Because they're like, I'm not that person that you thought I was. I've given myself a new name. I'm now this person. And, they, and they're doing that because they're saying, this is a new me. I want to be known by this name. The Lord says to Zion, I'm going to give you a new name. People aren't going to look at you as a city forsaken and forlorn, as a city abandoned. I am going to do such a work of grace that all the nations of the earth can't help but take notice and know that I'm the God. I'm the Lord God Almighty. In light of the Lord's promises to Zion and the Messiah's full success, what then? And this is the point I'm going to end on because we're not doing uh, chapter 62 quite verse by verse, uh, every little bit along the way. Uh, But I want you to look at verse 6. So to answer the question, in light of the Lord's promises to Zion, in light of Messiah's full success, he did all that the Father asked him to do. Here's where we are in the meantime. Verse 6. Did I put these words on the screen? I might have. Oh, good, I did. Verse 6 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. Who are the watchmen? Most commentators, and I think they're right, are going to say they're the prophets. The prophets are the watchmen. The prophets are the ones that put in people's minds what God has promised. 
They remind us what God has, this is what God has said. This is what the Lord has promised. Be encouraged. He's promised grace. He's promised reversal. He's promised blessing. So the Lord has set watchmen in Jerusalem all the day and all the night that they shall never be silent. And then I think it expands beyond the prophets. Because it's not just the prophets. Then the rest of verse 6 says, You who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest. I think that includes me. My hope is in the Lord. My hope is in Christ as as one day he will come back in power and glory and salvation will be uh, brought to completion. So you who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest. That's God. Don't let God rest. I mean, I wouldn't dare to say that except it's right in the Bible. Give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That's an amazing... Charles Spurgeon apparently loved that because he, he definitely preached an entire message on that concept. The prophets are not to rest. Those who put the Lord in remembrance are not to rest. And we're to not give God rest until he completes all that he promised to do. Isn't that amazing? And the only reason why we can do that is because God promised it. We're not badgering God to give us something he didn't promise. But who does this? Charles Spurgeon kind of unpacks this in a neat way. Uh, I'm going to take off that would be, who, when like you promise your kid, when you promise uh, your child or your grandchild, you're like, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take you to the zoo, or I'm going to take you to Disneyland, or I'm going to take you, and, and, and you're like, and I want you to keep reminding me every day that's what I'm going to do. You know, that's not what I do. I'm like, look, I said I was going to do it. I said we would watch Little House on the Prairie. Don't keep reminding me. That's what I tell them. Don't keep reminding me. I said I will do it. If you ask me one more time, we're not going to do it. <laughs> right? Isn't that what we do? The Lord says, don't give me rest until I've done all that I said I would do. That's an, that is mind-blowing. Part of our job as a church is to lift up to God. God, this is what you promised. It's exactly what Moses does when he intercedes for Israel. Israel has fallen into sin and God's like, I'm going to wipe those people out. I'm going to start over. And Moses is like, Lord, what about your name? You called them. They're your people. You said you would do this. And the Lord relents. And the Lord fulfills his promises to Israel because he said he would. He's not the only one. I know that I think I had it. Oh, Daniel does the same thing. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prays the same way. Lord, we pray for your mercy and your grace because you're the one that promised it. You said you were going to do this. Why do we pray that Christ comes back in power and glory? He said he would. Why do we pray for the salvation of Israel? He said he would. Why do we pray that all of Christ's sheep would be brought into the fold because he said they would? That's why we pray with boldness, because he's the one that said, don't give me rest until I've done it all. God is not going to renege on one iota of what he's promised in his purposes of redemption or his purposes of judgment. It will all be brought to fulfillment. And God says, don't let me rest until I've done it. That is an amazing concept. And I'd never thought about that or heard that thought uh, until I worked through this passage. What are your comments and questions? Terry. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, one of the, one of the most, 
sobering experiences I remember having was going to the Holocaust Museum, Museum in Washington, D.C. It's been many years ago now. I really would find it fascinating to go back, but it is very sobering. Uh, but one of the things that resounds out of coming through that museum are the amount you understand why Jews think it's hard to believe in a God in light of six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. But in a sense, that's exactly what God said would happen. Because they've lived in idolatry and disobedience and hardness of heart and waywardness and they have... Uh, disregarded the covenant kindness and faithfulness of the Lord their God. And God promised way back in in Numbers, if that's how you live, here's the judgment I'm going to bring. The fact that the judgment came is evidence of God. Not a lack of evidence. It's evidence of God. But thankfully, grace wins the day even over judgment and justice. That's a message out of James. But that's a fascinating concept. That's, you're right. People in our culture think, look at all the suffering. Look at all the, look at all the bad things that are happening. I mean, no matter what we're facing, we get better than we deserve. We've received more mercy from God than we can possibly imagine. It's just that we are so inflated with ourselves, we think we deserve better. Somebody else? Chapter 63 next week. Chapter 63. I'm not sure how long or fast or slow we'll be going through the rest of Isaiah. I'm not even sure if I'll... I'm sure... Well, I probably will take a break right at Christmas. I'm not really positive. I play it by ear. But uh, next year we will work through, I think, Ephesians. There's only a few books in the New Testament we've never done. Ephesians being one of them. It's been on my list for a long time. Uh, I've never taught Ephesians my whole life, Uh, so it'll be fun. Uh, Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.